Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Uh, we've had a bit of a break for a variety of reasons, including family emergencies, some of us getting COVID, as well as general busyness. But we are back with the fourth installment of our discussion of Wittgenstein's Tractatus. In this episode, we will cover Propositions 5 and Part of 6, which we will finish up in the next episode. We still have two more episodes following this one, maybe three more, uh, in which we will both finish discussing the text and reflect on the tremendous richness of this terrible and brilliant little book. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Ministry of Tactical Faith and is part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. We have some cool stuff going on with Tactical Faith, including some work on documentaries, events, and so on. So check out tacticalfaith.com. And if you're enjoying this, keep an eye out for a new website and content for Wondering Toward Wisdom. If you have any comments, complaints, or requests, email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com. That's wondering with an A. Or say something to us on Twitter, at Toward Wisdom. Enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while, but we are back to talk about Wittgenstein, and we hope to finish up in the next couple of weeks to finish up the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus. It uh, depends on how uh, long-winded Joel gets. But today we're going to talk about Propositions 5 and part of Proposition 6. Uh, again, if you've been following along, it's been a little while because of some personal stuff, some busyness in our lives. But if you've been following along, we went over the propositions before. Proposition 5 is propositions are truth functions of elementary propositions, and an elementary proposition is a truth function of itself. Uh, if you don't know what that means, don't worry. Joel's going to make all things clear. He's sort of like the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and then Proposition 6 is the weird one about the form of a proposition. But again, Joel will help explain some of that. But anyway, we're going we're gonna to get through, if you have a book, which we don't suggest, then we're going to get through about 6.3. And then next, the next podcast we do, we'll f- finish up the book. And then who knows, if we have a lot to talk about, we may, we may we'll probably have another episode or two where we just kind of discuss some of the import of the book. But without further ado, Joel, you want to give us, explain some of this to us. Sure. Well, Proposition 5, as Travis said, is propositions are truth functions of elementary propositions, and elementary proposition is a truth function of itself. It would be helpful for us to pause for a minute, and before we parse that out, remind ourselves that when Wittgenstein's talking about the world and propositions, that propositions are kind of truths about the world or, or statements about the world. And, um, and what he's going to say with philosophy is philosophy is concerned with the relationship between propositions. So instead of, instead of uh, necessarily the focus being on the propositions and how they relate to the world, he's going to say that philosophy is going to be more about the way the propositions relate to each other. Uh, for instance, he he says, uh, if God created a world where uh, proposition P follows from proposition Q, and Q is true, then that means that God creates a world where P is true as well. One way to think of it is, um, if if we have the statement Q, and from Q by itself we can get this truth P, then 
or, or this statement P, then if Q is true, P has to be true. So if we say something like the sun rises in the east, and from that statement we can get the statement the sun exists, then if it's true that the sun rises in the east, then it's true that the sun exists. The existence of the sun doesn't necessarily mean that it rises in the east, but that's that's because we we don't get that statement or we don't get the more complex statement from the simple statement. We get the simple statement comes from the complex statement. So this, like I said, he's concerned about the way that propositions relate to each other. Um, and he, 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 he has, while he's laying out the way that his concerns about the way propositions relate to each other, at different points, he's going to say, he's going to po point us to where the limits are. He's going to point us to things that might push back on the way that we are inclined to think about things. Um, for instance, he says, obviousness is no justification for belief in truth if obviousness does not follow from truth. So just because something seems obvious that's not justification for it being true. It's only justification for it being true if it follows, if the obviousness follows from truth. So, I mean, we, we can think of things that some people think are obvious and, and, and not to pick on kids, but kids kind of give this thing, give us a good example of, you know, things that they think are obviously true are not true because they don't have the big picture. The kids, kids, don't understand the complexity of the world. And so some things that they think are obviously true. And so they, they act as though they're true because it's just obvious. Um, they aren't actually true because they don't follow from the obviousness doesn't follow from truth. It follows from, from misguided connections. And um, similarly with our propositions, if our propositions don't relate to each other in the right way or in, in particular ways, we can't get truth from them, even if it seems like it would be obvious that truth follows from that. Um, he, he goes on, he, and speaking again about the way this is really limited in, in what it tells us about the world. At one point he says, all propositions of logic say the same thing. That is, nothing. What he's saying is that the propositions in and of themselves don't actually say anything meaningful. Now, we can talk about how the logical truth functions connect to each other and that we can get one proposition from another and how if these two are in this relationship to each other, that's a true relation or a false relation. But what matters in the when we when is looking at the propositions themselves and how they relate to the world and that gives us the truth of the propositions which isn't what the logic is concerned about the logic is only concerned about the way that the propositions relate to each other not about how the propositions necessarily connect with the world itself 
Now that that's that can be a little difficult to understand, um, but he he gives this example that I think might be helpful. And he says, when we say two things are identical, that's nonsense. But if we say one thing is identical with itself, we're just stating something that's tautologist, that's just obviously true. And so when we start talking about things like identity when it comes to logic, if we have two things that are identical, they're not two things, they're the same thing. And so that's why to say two things are identical is nonsense. But when we say something is identical with itself, that's just obviously true and it doesn't tell us anything new about the world. And this is kind of where Wittgenstein is ultimately going. Philosophy, if we're going to reduce philosophy to the relationship between propositions and truth functions of logic, it's not going to tell us much of anything new about the world. It might be an interesting game to play. It might be an interesting uh, thing to argue about. We can we can try to get really clear with our language. We can try to get really precise with our language and the way that our propositions relate to one another. But it's not necessarily going to tell us much about the world unless we have a bigger picture in mind, which if you've listened to the podcast for any length of time, I think you you sense that Travis and I both believe philosophy can can do a lot more than just logic. Um, but Wittgenstein's kind of saying, this seems where philosophy's painting itself right now, so let's go down this route. Let's, you know, as I, I mentioned earlier, Wittgenstein thinks he solves all the problems of philosophy in this book. And we'll see how he thinks he does that as we as we continue through these last two prop or last last three propositions, not right. the last two because well, we still have seven. Yeah, let me let me. So I think there's a part like if somebody just happened to jump into this podcast and they don't know anything about philosophy or they know what the average person might think about philosophy, they're they would probably be nodding in uh, zealous agreement with Wittgenstein. Yeah, these philosophers aren't saying anything; they just they think they're smart talking about stuff that doesn't matter. Uh, and maybe this is something that we should talk about later. Uh, but we just had an, we just had a, um, we just saw, uh, someone, uh, who's a philosopher on social media, uh, ask if for anybody, the study of philosophy had changed their life or had any particular impact on their personal life. And the response of this particular person was that it had no effect on his own life. It was an academic activity. Now that's sort of a different, but I think related issue um, because uh, we're, we're using philosophy a lot of different ways. So Wittgenstein is solving all the problems of philosophy, but I don't think we would say that he's solving all the problems of philosophy. He's actually just showing where the problems really lie. But given the way philosophy was being defined down, and maybe some history of philosophy would be helpful here too, where a lot of people have seen, so it used to be, I'll do this quickly though, uh, used to be everything was philosophy. There's natural, science was just called natural philosophy. 
And so philosophy is sort of the analysis of human knowledge, the pursuit of wisdom, and the pursuit of wisdom has to do with knowing about the world and human place in the world, so on and so forth. As all the different elements of, of intellectual pursuit broke off and became their own, it's in some ways you could see philosophy as an analysis of the terms and the way that they relate to one another logically within those different realms. And so it's almost like a, uh, we're like the grammar police of all the sciences. Right. That might be one way of putting it, except it's logical. It's logical. It's not strictly grammar, but like we're not adding anything to the content. Uh, we're not fiddling with the content. We're just making sure that with the way your content relates is done appropriately in a logical way. And so we can talk about mathematics. We can talk about science. We can talk about psychology. We can talk about anything because all we're talking about is the logical relations between these things. You bring the facts. We make sure all those facts relate to what the propositions relate to one another appropriately. In that way, philosophy adds nothing. We're not adding anything to the room. We're just making sure your bookshelves are all straightened up. That's all we're doing, right? Something like that. In which case, he is solving all the problems of philosophy. Uh, right? is, is, am I, maybe I shouldn't be stating this, but I'm saying, am I close to what he's talking about? I, I think so. I think he's, I think he's concerned that well, we're going to see as we continue into Proposition 6 especially that he's going to say that something, some areas of philosophy that I think most everyone agrees are, at least historically, incredibly core parts of philosophy don't fit in here. And that they, they're outside of what this is doing, what this can do even. And so um, I think he's, this is a critique of um, what philosophy has become. It's not a prescriptive way of how we should do philosophy. And, and I think we're going to see that too. He, he's he's going to show us that uh, in the end, that there is, that if this is what philosophy is, philosophy doesn't really have much to do with life. It doesn't really have much to contribute. But if we can see this, maybe we can do something about it. And there's that see, that say show distinction or to say and to see division. Okay. All right. So, the, you know, he's, so He's told us that propositions are truth functions and elementary propositions, you know, and he's talking about the truth functions, but all of that, while that's, that's an important part of it, what I think are the most important parts in the discussion of this proposition, as I said earlier, are where he's putting limits on things, where he's pushing back, where he's saying, ah, you can only go this far. And this is going to, I think, be an interesting uh, this can lead to an interesting discussion, but he says at 5.6, and this is a key proposition of the entire work, the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. Uh, let me say that again. The limits of my language mean the limits of my world. What does that mean? It means what I can talk about, what I can conceive, what I can think about is going to 
place limits the limits on how I understand the world to be. So if, for instance, I mean, we see this all the time with people. You know, you talk to someone who is a materialist, who doesn't believe in the possibility of, of supernatural um, things in the world. The idea of a supernatural thing is complete nonsense to them. Uh, they, they can't they can't imagine a world with supernatural elements. And so because of the way that their their ability to think of the world is, that's going to structure and put limits on how they conceive of the world. Um, but it's not just a matter of concepts, but it's a matter of of individuals going that that um, that have this problem. He says, um, we cannot exclude certain possibilities of things in the world for to do so would require logic to get outside the limits of the world, which it cannot do. So Wittgenstein is, is basically saying logic doesn't define where the limits are. All logic can do is work where the limits happen to be. And if, if we are the ones that are putting the limits on the world, it's not that logic is doing it, it's us. And so when, when we exclude possibilities, that's not logic, that's not philosophy, that's the person and their limitations. Now, we're finite creatures. We we can't conceive of all the possibilities. So Wittgenstein is admitting up front, no one's getting it right. Because no one can get it all the way right. We're limited. Um, you know, he 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 says, you know, we cannot say what we cannot think. So again. The limits we have on our thoughts place the limits on our language, which which places the limits on the logic we're using in philosophy. It's not philosophy that's putting limits on what we can say and think. Rather, it's us that are putting those limits on. Later, he said, and this is this is this is also this builds on that. The limits of my language mean the limits of my world. He says, I am my world. And then he says, the subject does not belong to the world, but is a limit to the world. So here he's saying, when it comes to our subjectivity, the, the me, the person who's trying to understand things, who's being philosophical about things, that I am not... In the world, I'm a limit of the world. I I put the limits on things. I I I make it so that I can talk that the things I talk about are the things that I'm capable of talking about. And what I can't talk about are it's my issue that it's that way. Um, he said, he says the subject is like the eye, but the eye is not seen in the field of sight. So we're having this experience of the world and in the same way that we can 
tinker with the eye to focus in on things or to magnify things or or to to you know we can modify what the eye sees the eye is just kind of receiving things but also can manipulate things as it receives it um but it's not part of the world itself yeah so the analogy breaks down a little bit but the limit of what the eye can see is the limit of the what the eye can see Full stop. Right. And we also obviously this we have to take this analogy far further than merely because we could think about like seeing other people's eyes and fiddling with them. But the eye is the thinking subject itself, which is merely the because uh, this is really this this reminds me. I'm not trying to drop names here, but if you know anything about phenomenology, Husserl, uh, mm-hmm. uh, this is a similar sort of thing where whatever whatever it is that's knowing cannot look back on itself whatever we are we cannot look back on ourselves um uh we are uh we are the world we are the children we yeah. are the, uh so this so this is this is interesting and i i don't know if i should interrupt you here but this sounds very and i think you mentioned it but it sounds very pessimistic and could you take Wittgenstein and become some sort of relativist with regard to this and say, well, I guess nobody can know anything. So we're just going to have to deal with the fact that nobody can know anything. And that's, we can never be sure, you know, and fall into a kind of, I don't know what you call postmodernism or something like that, or. Well, to, to hop ahead. Okay. In, in, in proposition six near the end, we'll talk about this more in the next podcast. Wittgenstein says that skepticism is not irrefutable, but palpably senseless. Meaning that this to which I, I think relativism requires a kind of skepticism. And in that sense, I think Wittgenstein would say, um, not that we should be relativistic about things, but there's, there's a sense of humility involved with recognizing your limits. Um, it doesn't mean that you're, you're wrong on you, it, but it, you recognize that your limits only show you so much and you can be right within those limits while there's still being more to the picture than what you understand. Yeah. And this is, and it seems like you would only end in this if you were thinking about the knowledge that we have in a purely individualistic mindset the fact is that we have interactions with other people and that's one of the and that i know the investigations gets into that more we're just talking about mm-hmm. how kids just kind of know the rules of games and they just they don't even have to communicate them they just play them and they evolve in relation to the situation and they all just kind of know it's as if there's like a uh of course i don't know what to say about that but there's there's a sense in which we one of the experiences we have in the world is we we perceive things, we argue about the way the world is, and sometimes we experience the world as being. I'm trying to get the say show distinction here a little bit, but often it isn't what we're told; it's what we experience that might that or see something like that that transforms our world, which fits with the eye analogy really well. So, okay, I'll, I'll leave that alone. I just it sounds so pessimistic with regard to knowledge, as if. It's just, well, whatever's true for you is true for you, but he's not necessarily saying no, quite that. No. And and there's an element where um 
I so when we get if if we get to the investigations at some point, philosophical investigations, the other book that Wittgenstein put together, but it was published posthumously. Um, in that book, he talks about forms of life and language games, and how the form each different forms of life have different language games, and such that it makes sense to talk in a certain way if you're playing the language game related to one form of life. Um, but using that same, those same words in a different form of life are complete nonsense. And I think there's an element of that, that being uh, the groundwork for that being laid in the Tractatus when he's talking about kind of the, um, that, that there is a, um, your your own experience of things is is a limiting factor, and you can speak from your own experience, but that there's there's more going on uh, than your experience can can translate. Um, similarly, with a form of life, you know that what you the way you may structure the world is going to be incomplete. A different way might structure it differently, but it's going to be incomplete as well. But there's a way to talk in each of those. Uh, areas that make sense and can be true and right for that understanding. Um, but that's more, that's worth getting into more uh, if we talk about the investigations at some point. But the, the idea is right. we're all limited, but we're all trying to get as much right as we can within our limits, I think. That sets us up for Proposition 6 where Wittgenstein gives us the general form of a proposition or the general form of a truth function, which is also the general form of a proposition. And it's a bunch of Greek letters and functions. And frankly, I find this to be a hilarious choice as the sixth proposition, given all the things that he talks about in the sixth proposition that really don't have anything to do at all remotely with the proposition. It's almost like he's saying, here's the general form of a truth function. Here's the general form of a proposition. But as you can see, that really doesn't tell us anything about life. So let's talk about the things that actually matter. Um, and okay, because well, proposition six is really rich. Yes. Like the, the, the sub-propositions, but the proposition itself is just... Like the initial one is, yeah, like you said. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, if if Wittgenstein seemed, biographically, if it seemed like he was someone who had a sense of humor about himself at this time, I would have, I would say that this was a big joke that he put in. But from all I've read about his bio, biography at the time, he he took himself probably too seriously at this point in his life. So, um I'm not sure what to do with that, but I I almost see it as a kind of joke, to be honest, um, because of, of all that comes to follow. So proposition six, um, as as we're we're only going to get through the first uh, couple sub propositions um, because it gets so rich and so dense that you know uh, it's it's worth digging into very. Uh, to going into the depth, but we'll, we'll start at the beginning and, and see where we get uh, 
before we wrap up this episode. So Wittgenstein tells us the propositions of logic are tautologies and therefore say nothing. They're analytic propositions. Now, the idea of analytic propositions, um, probably most famously goes back to uh, Hume and Kant, um, where analytic propositions are things that don't say anything true because they're tautology. So like all bachelors are male. That is a tautology because part of being a or all bachelors are unmarried males uh, because part of being a bachelor is being an unmarried male. So that it doesn't, if you know what a bachelor is, that doesn't tell you anything. It's, it's an obvious truth. Uh, when Wittgenstein talks about experience, he says that no part of experience is a priori. Um, that is often thought as before experience. It's, it's not uh, the, the analytic truth. Um, and so we have experience on one side. We have these analytic truths on the other. And so, again, philosophy is doing the work of analyzing the relationships between our propositions. Now, I might take a little more generous interpretation than Travis and, and say that there, there is some value to saying, hold on, you're saying this and you're saying this, and these don't line up together. Maybe you need to think a little more carefully about what you're saying or why you think this connection is there. <clears throat> and and actually, this is going to be something Victor Nine talks about in a little bit. But um, but really, on the whole, analyzing our propositions is not often going to change the way we live our lives. It might change the way that we think about the world, but it's going to take additional steps besides analyzing the relationship between our propositions to actually affect our lives. Um, it's going to take realizing that the, the breakdown between these two means that the connect, the, the breakdown of the connection between these two propositions means that maybe one of them isn't true. And then we have to analyze why that might be or modify one of them, you know, but there's additional work to be done. It's not just the, the analyzing of the relationship. Um, again, Travis and I both think philosophy is important for a lot more than analyzing the relationships. But if we're going to go down this route, which is kind of a popular understanding of philosophy, and especially a hundred years ago, um, this Wittgenstein's got a, a, a very pointed critique. Um, He's going to, he, he talks about uh, when we have um, non-logical propositions, so things that aren't just about logic, things that are not just analytically true, um, the propositions themselves don't tell us if they're true or false. We need something more than the proposition itself to tell us if it's true or false. Um, so while we can talk about the connection between the propositions. We don't, we have to look, we have to go beyond philosophy to talk about whether the propositions 
are true or false. Um, says the fact that the propositions of logic are tautologies show the formal logical properties of language and the world. Uh, we need tautologies to structure the world and logic. And so logic is this important structure to how we understand the world, how we structure the world. He, he calls it at one point the scaffolding of the world. But it's scaffolding in that they kind of show us the world in a particular way rather than it being the totality of the world itself. Um, one way to think of it is, you know, I mean, I think scaffolding is a great way to, to think of it, you know, and scaffolding can be thought of in multiple ways. You know, you can think of scaffolding as something that raises you up and that gives you a different perspective on things and allows you to see things and, and do things that you can't do when you're on the ground. Um, similarly, if we, you know, think about, um, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, kids do ha have this when they're in school, they, they have, you know, graph paper, you know, clear, a sheet of clear graph paper that they can put over the top of an irregular object, and then they can count squares to figure out the area of it. You know, that, that gives a scaffolding that, that, that can work as a scaffolding to give us structure, to give us a way of seeing things, a way of understanding things. Um, that's not the thing itself, but it, it's, it's, it helps us, but it's not the thing itself. And the problem becomes when we think that the the scaffolding is the thing itself, or that structure is the thing itself, rather than something to help us understand the thing itself. Um, yeah. So, you know, with the, the positives of this is there can never be surprises in logic. You know, if when you have your scaffolding a certain way, you might see things that you didn't see before, but when you take a step back, you're like, oh, well, based on the way that the scaffolding is, the way that this tool is set up to help me understand the world, that makes a lot of sense why it, we come to that understanding. It's not, it's not an actual surprise, even if it may be new knowledge to us. It's knowledge that is kind of uh, inherent in the system, you, you could say. Um, He, he goes on and talks about math, math being a logical method, that the propositions of mathematics are equations that, that are kind of pseudo propositions, but they function like propositions. You know, we have these you know, numerical values that are basically propositions and we talk about the relation between them and, you know, that it's great. Um, but that that's kind of what philosophy becomes is it becomes a you know this analyzing well do you really have four plus seven on one side and eleven on the other you know like again it has its places where it can be helpful but it doesn't show us much new even if it gives us new information for us um it says in philosophy the question, why do we really use that word? That proposition certainly leads to valuable results. And that's 
noteworthy because this gets at this idea of how we state the proposition matters. The words we use matter, not to the logic as much as trying to express that the way the world is, um, but when we have a proposition that we state in a particular way that can, if we change the way we state it, it might change the way it relates to other propositions. And if you take a logic class, especially with uh, where you have to translate regular sentences into logic sentence sentences, especially with quantifiers, you know, you, you find that where you put the parentheses on something can change the way that that sentence is interpreted. Um, it's, it's not, I mean, but we also know this with math, you know, if, if, if you remember, um, you know, the, the order of, of operations, you know, you do your parentheses and then you do your multiplication and division, and then you do your addition and subtraction. But that, those parentheses make a make a difference in things. Um, similarly, with propositions, and when we're and and this is what philosophers spend a lot of time doing is they spend a lot of time trying to get really clear on their propositions so that they can talk about the relationships between propositions in very clear, logical ways, um, where there's no ambiguity, there's no confusion, that we can say yes this proposition leads to that proposition or no, there's no way that they can, the, the connection between them is completely uh, broken apart and valuable. Meh, it has its place. But, but if we reduce philosophy to that, um, does it gonna, is it going to change the way that you live your life or see your, see the world? Probably not, not in of itself. The last uh, part I want to talk about in this episode is in 6.3. In 6.3, he says, Logical research meant the investigation of all regularity. And outside logic, all is accident. The short uh, explanation of this is if we want to talk about a necessity, about causation, anything like that, that's logic. Because only logic can produce the it must be this way results that we're looking for. Anything outside of logic is accident. Um so when he said so kind of the famous philosophical examples of this. So when, is that when we say the sun will rise tomorrow, you know, we, we think that's obviously true, but that, you know, we could have some sort of cataclysmic event where the aliens blow up our sun uh, tonight and the sun won't rise tomorrow. Um, there, it's not a necessity about the way the universe, the world is that the sun has to rise tomorrow in the same way that logic necess logical necessity works. Um, you know, he, he's going to, he talks about, um, there's a, 
in philosophy, we talk about deduction versus induction. And deduction is that logical, logically follows, where we can look at the propositions and we can come up with uh, propositions that follow from those propositions. Um, but it's a very uh, logical thing. It, it has to be this way. It can't not be this way. Induction is where we start talking about probability, uh, matters of probability. And, you know, so much of our experience comes back to induction, uh, the way we understand the world. When we think about things that happen on a regular basis, um, it comes from induction that we recognize that, yes, the sun will rise tomorrow unless something crazy happens. Um, but it's the fact that we can say that unless something crazy happens, that makes it a matter of probability rather than necessity. Um, this is one of those nudges, I think, that Wittgenstein's trying to say, show that philosophy doesn't really help us with living our lives very much because how much of our lives can be reduced to logical necessity? Very little. Um, in part because we each have our own limits and we each have our own worlds that we're, we're making up. Um, you know, we have our world versus the world. I, I, that's a distinction I should have made earlier. Wittgenstein will talk about the world and then he'll talk about my world. And those are two different things. It, it's, it's, but he's not always consistent in the way he, he does, does it. But when he talks about my world, he's talking about what's connected to the limits that I impose. We talked about the world. He's talking usually about what's beyond our limits. And, you know, he's going to say that, you know, philosophy is focused on that logic, but we need more than logic if we're going to talk about causation, if we're going to talk about the sun rising tomorrow, if we're going to talk about the billiard balls bouncing off each other in a particular way. All of that requires more than what logic gives us. And we want to talk about those concepts in a meaningful way, but we we run into problems if uh, we we buy into this um, these limits of philosophy. Um, I want to read a a section here quick. Uh, here we go. Uh, this is comes from. Uh, 6.37, I'm going to read a few of the propositions that follow from this. He says, at the basis of the whole modern view, or 3.7, sorry, a necessity for one thing to happen because another has happened does not exist. There's only logical necessity. Uh, 6.371, at the basis of the whole modern view of the world lies the illusion that the so-called laws of nature are explanations of natural phenomena. Uh, 6.372, so people stopped short at natural laws as something unassailable, as did the ancients at God and fate. And they are both right and wrong. 
but the Asians were clear insofar as they recognized one clear conclusion, whereas in the modern system, it should appear as though everything were explained. And then he says, the, in 6373, the world is independent of my will. 6374, even if everything we wished were to happen, this would only be, so to speak, a favor of fate, for there is no logical connection between will and world, which would guarantee this, and the assumed physical connection itself we could not again will. He's showing, he's saying to us, I especially want to focus on that, the gods and fate and uh talking about the ancients and their views of God and fate. Wittgenstein's saying there's something worthwhile about the fact that they point to one thing and say, yep, that it, that, that. We don't understand the gods and fates, but that explains it. Um, because there, there still involves a bit of a mystery, even if we can have an explanation. Whereas if we're going to follow the modern view, as Wittgenstein says, we should be able to explain everything, and we can't. We try. We're getting closer. I don't want to go God of the gaps kind of thing, but what Wittgenstein's saying is the fact that we, the ancients allowed for some mystery might be a good thing. Um, that if, by, because by admitting mystery, you're admitting that philosophy and logic is incomplete as far as being able to fully understand the world. And so Wittgenstein's saying philosophy can't give us causation. It can only give us logical connections, which go back to those analytic propositions. So philosophy can help us analyze things like all bachelors are unmarried males. It can help us maybe discuss about uh, the way two propositions are connected to each other or multiple propositions are connected to each other. But as far as helping us live our lives, it's not going to be a very useful tool if we understand it this way. So I think that's a good stopping point. Uh, that sets us up for some, for very little of the book that's left but there's a whole lot to talk about and a whole lot of diversions we can get caught up on uh, in what follows between now and the end of the book. So, All right. So uh, I have a lot of comments I want to make, but we've already gone long. So, or maybe questions, I should say, but we have gone, uh, I think we're, we're at our limit here. Uh, so we'll, we'll save some of these questions and maybe some of you who are listening might have some but we'll hopefully hit some of these uh, in the next episode or the one following because uh, the limitations of logic and how we relate to science nowadays and all this kind of stuff is very interesting and the desire to explain everything. Um, very fascinating stuff. And what Wittgenstein is saying is not uh, you must be religious or whatever, but there's almost a kind of recognition of the the necess necessity of humility, something like that, it seems like. So, excellent. Okay, uh, but I'll let Joel explain that. I'm just, I'm speaking as a non-expert in the thing. So, 
All right. Well, thank you for listening. And Joel, thank you for presenting. And hopefully we'll be able to, we'll, we'll put out another episode very soon. Uh, there won't be this big gap. And, uh, but until next time, I'm Travis. I'm Joel. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. <laughs>